Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, have you been wondering about your mental health status lately? Are you wondering if everybody else is having questions about their mental health? Have you wondered about the stigma of mental illness? Well, today we're going to be talking about all of that. The stigma of mental illness, are any of us normal? Our mental health has been taking a beating during this past year. Lots of people, more people than ever, are suffering from all kinds of uh, psychological problems, anxiety, depression, PTSD, germophobia, agoraphobia, um, all kinds of problems. And so we are, especially now as we're about to re-enter society, we are wondering about whether we are fit to do so. Certainly wondering whether we are um, as healthy or as uh, able to handle our lives as we were before the pandemic and the lockdowns came. Well, we are in luck because today, my guest is someone who can shed a whole bunch of light on all of this. Um, His name is Dr. Roy Richard Grinker. He's a professor of anthropology at George Washington University. He's editor-in-chief of the Anthropological Quarterly. He's an award-winning author of several books, and particularly for today, Nobody is Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. Um, He also has a family who has, he he not only talks about mental illness and stigma as a professor, but also uh, from his own very interesting family history, with all kinds of connections to mental illness uh, and psychiatry. And um, his, his family's four generations uh, include his great-grandfather, a scientist who believed mental illness was a sign of biological inferiority, his grandfather, a patient of Freud, and his daughter's experience with autism, about which he wrote a book called Unstrange Minds, Remapping the world of autism. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Grinker. It feels like I could talk to you for weeks. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to have an opportunity to speak to your audience. Now, um, how come, by the way, <laughs> what made you go into anthropology instead of psychiatry? Well, I had this uh, family of psychiatrists that you just mentioned, and they told me as early as six years old, what I was going to do for my life, that I was going to be a psychiatrist (laughs) just like them. I'm sure you know from your own work as an expert in mental health that that's a surefire way to prevent that child from from going into that field. Um, I sort of self-sabotaged. You know, I did badly in science and math, but I did really well in school and social science and the arts and the humanities. But I always had this thought in the back of my mind that I really was supposed to do something related to mental health. I mean, it, is, it was something that mm-hmm. consumed my family. They were, particularly my grandfather, who was my major mentor, he was dedicated to providing care uh, for people with mental illnesses and to promoting research on mental health and breaking down barriers to care. And what anthropology did was it gave me a way in to study mental health without having to be a doctor. Uh-huh. Hmm. And so what that meant That's very was, yeah. yeah, well, you know, what, what we do in anthropology is that we look at the world and we say, uh, the way we do things and the way we think about things is not natural. It's cultural. And if we go around the world and look at other cultures and how they operate, we can see just how creative human beings are. So some people think the goal of anthropology, and I certainly thought this early on in my studies, is to go around the world and study other cultures. But that's only half of it. The other half is to come back to your own world and see it in a new light. It's sort of like, you know, your eyes open up. When you go to Europe, 
you notice, if you're American and you go to Europe, you notice immediately how small the streets are and how small the cars are. Mm-hmm. You come back to the United States and you, you say, wow, the streets are huge. The people are huge. Mm-hmm. The cars are huge. And, um, and it's that um, shift in perspective that helps you see things differently. And traveling mm-hmm. and living in other societies and other parts of the world has just given me so many different perspectives, not only on my culture, but even on my personal life and my uh, role as a dad. Uh-huh. Well, yes, I actually went to medical school in Belgium. So I lived in mm. Belgium and I lived in Paris and I lived in the U- in London. Um, so I know exactly what you mean, both going both directions. Um, well, I, you know, one of the things that I actually, when I lived in London, it was primarily because I studied under Anna Freud. So, um, I find, (laughs) yes, so I find it especially uh, interesting that your, that your grandfather uh, was a patient of Freud's. Uh, uh, Is how old, I'm trying to figure out how that, how old was he when he was a patient of Freud's? He's about 33 years old, and uh, uh-huh. Anna, Anna was already uh, uh, grown, uh, pretty much grown. Uh, he would, my grandfather interacted with Anna Freud as well. Huh. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. In those days, uh, well, to become a psychoanalyst, you had to be analyzed, right? But right. because it was training, you could apply for grants. I mean, he got a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to be analyzed by Freud. Oh, wow. So, I mean, if if I could get a grant to get psychotherapy, I'd love that, but got to pay for that out of pocket. Um, so he went there, and he was actually originally going to study with Sander Ferenczi, but for some reason, Ferenczi didn't have time, and he said, try, try Freud. And uh, so, <laughs> so he went to, wow. went to Freud, and um, Freud was an incredibly important person in his life because he had such a powerful... Um, identification with him, or you know what analysts call transference, uh, for his, around his father. My grandfather detested his father, and Freud was somebody that could be a kind of screen that allowed or a stand-in to allow him to work through some of those feelings. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when his, you knew him, mm-hmm. when you were growing up. What did your grandfather tell you? Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's hours and hours of stories. Um, did he, by the way, did he write any of this down, or did you write any of these stories down of what it was like being analyzed by Freud? Well, I, I put a lot of these stories in the book uh, that haven't been published mm-hmm. before. Um, he did publish a couple of reminiscences about Freud, but but really, um, but not not a not a ton. Um, he did talk to me a lot about it because I asked him. Mm-hmm. So many questions. Um, he was not a huge fan of Freud. I mean, he was a huge fan of, of many of Freud's ideas, but he wasn't a huge fan of Freud as a person. Um, and he once said to me uh, that he didn't think Freud had a therapeutic bone in his body. And that he, <laughs> he, he challenged Freud on that once. And, and Freud said, you know what, if I really cared about curing or helping you, uh, then, then I, I just, I wouldn't do this at all. I only do this work because I'm trying to get at the structure of the human mind, and you're the vehicle huh. for me to learn about the mm. deeper. You know, Freud was very, he was very ambitious, and he, he didn't really, you know, care whether you were happy or not. He cared about whether you could advance his research. Now that's interesting. I mean, certainly I can see that, but. I wonder, you have to give, I mean, you know, actually it was when I uh, read Freud's interpretation of dreams when I was a teenager that made me want to be a psychiatrist. So this is all very, you know, so you can understand how then I eventually wound up uh, under studying under Anna Freud. And this was all, this was and is, uh, I I believe, and this is how I run my practice psychoanalytically, not with... um, not with psychoanalysis per se in terms of three times a week or whatever, but certainly everything through a psychoanalytic lens. I see everything in the world through a psychoanalytic lens. So, um, but so giving Freud the benefit of the doubt here, um, perhaps that he said that in part or revealed that in part because he thought that that would be helpful as far as your grandfather working through his issues about his father. You know, that that was kind of a cold thing to say. 
That's a great point, actually, because uh, the fact that Freud did have this uh, image, you know, or my grandfather did um, uh, give him, or Freud gave my grandfather the image that he was this kind of, you know, uncaring sort of disciplinarian type really contributed to the transference that helped my grandfather work through mm-hmm. his issues with his father. Now, who knows whether Freud did that on purpose or, <laughs> or not on purpose. But as you well know, the relationship between a therapist and a patient often, you know, takes on a dialogic dynamic of its own. And the therapist themselves, you know, they're not often aware of how that is shaping. Yeah. But I mean, here's the thing. My grandfather... Uh, really had a hard time getting out of his father's shadow and was always called Julius's boy in Chicago, never mm-hmm. by his name, always mm-hmm. Julius's boy. And his father hated Freud, hated psychoanalysis, uh, though he practiced psychoanalysis. Uh, he saw it as uh, kind of wishy-washy and non-scientific. And he told my grandfather, if you go and study analysis, we're, I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to disown you. Um, And it was only when my great-grandfather died very early, very quickly of pancreatic cancer when he was about 60, that my grandfather took that opportunity and within months left for Vienna. And and when he came back, he was no longer Julius's boy. He was one of Freud's last patients. And he staked out a Uh career that was very different. And he didn't see people with mental illnesses as inferior. He saw people with mental illnesses as normal, not to undercut the title of my book, but, you know, mm-hmm. ordinary, typical. Um, and he hoped for a day when we would say that mental illnesses were not a sign of weakness, but they were a sign of experience and human condition and the suffering that all human beings experience in their complicated and dynamic lives. Uh huh, and so that so that was the exact opposite of what his father um, thought. Maybe we oh, should yeah. we should go back. Maybe we should go back and talk about him, his his father, your great grandfather. Um, why did he? Um, why why did he believe that mental illness was a sign of biological inferiority? I think that he had absorbed some of the thought in France and Europe. He had come from Germany, or what was then Prussia, and I think he had absorbed a lot of these ideas that mental illnesses were an example of either the disintegration of the mind and body mm. or, the, or the degeneration of human beings from some sort of pure ideal. You have to remember that there was this notion in the 19th century that within each human being there were two competing parts, the good and the evil, the dark and the light, the kind mm-hmm. of thing we see in Faust and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Frankenstein and, uh-huh. and, 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 and that sort of literature. And um, it was thought that people with mental illnesses were really um, supposed to die out. I'm talking about people with serious mental illnesses, not somebody who's a little neurotic. I'm talking about, you know, major um, uh, serious mental illnesses. And so the idea was they, you know, for the eugenicists thought they should die out. They should not reproduce. And Uh that was was the way that he, um, he saw things. He wasn't that unusual for his time. But my grandfather, Uh to his credit, really rebelled against that. And he wanted to do something that my great-grandfather never wanted to do, which was to move psychiatry out of the asylums and into the general population, to be able to treat people who were sick but maybe didn't need 24-7 care or, or didn't need to be, by their standards or evaluation, institutionalized. The people that were suffering but didn't get care because psychiatry was occupied by asylum administrators, not by people who mm-hmm. were actually trying to do therapy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, um, by that, at that time, you know, the idea of a mental illness was incredibly shameful. Even when we get to the 1940s, um, we see um, people institutionalizing their children, um, whether it's for mental illness or a developmental disability. The father of child psychology, Eric Erickson, 
Um, he and his wife had, in the early 40s, they had a child with Down syndrome named Neil. They named the, the child, but then they immediately sent the child to an institution in California where he lived the rest of his life. And when they got home from mm-hmm. the hospital, Neil, uh, Eric Erickson and his wife Joan told their family, friends, including their own children, that the baby had died at birth. And they didn't even know they had a, huh. a, a brother until the brother died about 21 years later. I mean, that's how sort of shameful huh. it was. Uh-huh. You know, it's sort of ironic, though, that um, today, um, after the closing of most of the so-called asylums or state mental hospitals, county mental, well, mostly state mental hospitals, um, you know, I don't know what, I'd like to know what you think about this, but... Um, Really, that was a big mistake. Uh, yes, there were some that were, you know, cuckoo's nest, but uh, certainly not all of them. And the problem is that most of those people now or their descendants <laughs> are in jail or on the street, and, um, which is a much more unfortunate situation. Yeah, the, the idea of deinstitutionalization, the idea behind John F. Kennedy's Community Mental Health Act in 1963, the last law he signed before he was assassinated, was good. I mean, it was a worthy idea to deinstitutionalize. Why should people uh, rot in institutions when, if they could live in the community or they could live with family? The problem is that we never provided the funding for exactly. people to get care. And so essentially deinstitutionalization became a kind of dumping of people onto the streets. Right, and right. exactly. that's the problem. Yeah. The, um, in, yeah. Yes, yes. It's not the, you know, yes, the idea of somebody being in the least restrictive environment is great. It's just that there were no least restrictive environments provided. Well, we need to take a break. Um, My guest is Dr. Roy Richard Grinker. Um, The book that we are primarily talking about for the moment is called Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. And we will be right back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and I want to get right back to Dr. Grinker. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Dr. Roy Richard Grinker. He is a professor of anthropology. He's a, an award-winning author. 
Um, we're talking, we've been talking for, for right now about the book Nobody's Normal, his latest book, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. And he has a whole family history of people who were basically pro-Freud or, or anti-Freud or, and, and, and Freudian analysis and uh, actually was a, a his grandfather, great-grandfather, no, his grandfather was a patient of Freud's. Um, we were talking during the break about his father, so why don't you, um, why don't you continue with that? Well, my, grand, my father didn't do much research, but he did one really fascinating project with my grandfather. There was a, a small college, uh, no longer exists, uh, just outside Chicago, and they, they decided, what do normal people look like? Because every study, you know, they would look, okay. they, would, they, they would give surveys and they would do psychometric testing and they would find out who had mental illnesses and then they would study them and they would never look at the people who didn't qualify for a mental illness. Mm. So they had this idea, mm. hmm, let's look at the young men who don't qualify for any mental illness at all and study them. And so they studied mm-hmm. these hundreds of people who didn't qualify for any mental illness and they were so boring. They... <laughs> they, had, they lacked insight. They lacked creativity. They lacked ambition. They lacked any kind of drive. They acted on impulse rather than care and thoughtfulness. Um, and they never went out on a limb to do anything unusual. And they asked in their paper in 1961 in the Archives of General Psychiatry, of which my grandfather was the founding editor, they, they asked the question, is this the cost that civilization has to pay for normality? Is this the cost, the lack of creativity, lack of diversity, lack of innovation, is this the cost that we have to pay to be normal? And they said this in the age of conformity, you know, where everybody wanted to be like everybody else, everybody wanted to be normal. And they said this decades before neurodiversity, decades before LGBTQ and civil rights legislation was was really gearing up to talk about diversity. Um, It was a remarkable... Uh, a, a remarkable project that really informs this, uh, the, the title of my book, Nobody's Normal, because, you know, at least nobody interesting is normal. How about that? Say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, of course, everybody wants to be normal. Uh, in a way, everybody wants to be normal, wants to be thought of as normal, but at the same time, um, they want to be special. So... So what, what, um, well, let, before we get into the whole stigma, um, can we talk a little bit about your daughter, about whom you wrote Unstrange Minds, Remapping the World of Autism? What, what, sure. First of all, what was that like? I mean, I guess that's what you write about in the book. Um, what was it like uh, with all this incredible background, ancestry, in regard to psychiatry and Freud and analysis and all of that, what was it like um, having a daughter and realizing um, gradually, presumably, that she was autistic? Well, it's important to know that when she was diagnosed, which is February of 1994, um, actually not that many people knew much about autism. It was a very narrowly defined concept. It didn't often include people with intellectual disabilities or seizure disorders, uh, or if it did, those people were seen by neurologists, not by mental health professionals or psychologists or social workers or speech therapists. They didn't see people with autism. They were, they were in, the, in the realm of pediatrics and neurology. And so most people who at that time had been trained in psychiatry I had never seen anybody with autism or at least described as autistic mm. in their residencies. You know, you take the, mm. the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Tom Insel, never says he never saw a person with autism in, the, in his uh, training in San Francisco. And my wife is a psychiatrist as well. And she mm. never saw anybody who was diagnosed with autism in her practice, not because those people weren't there. They were seen elsewhere. And so Isabel Mm. was diagnosed at a time when we were just starting to expand the notion of autism away from this narrow view to see it as something more of a spectrum that could contain milder cases and more severe cases. And her life, you know, she's like almost 30 now, really 
covered that period of time from the, you know, 1994, just after autism became a, a classification in the special education system. I mean, it was it had just become a, a category, a brand new one, um, to now where uh, autism is, is such an, you know, enormous umbrella term. Uh-huh. And what and, is amazing, right. what is amazing about her is just how far she's come. And it's not just her. Like, it's not just because she did well or we worked hard. It's because society changed. It's because we became more open and understanding about diversity. She's benefited from all of these movements, whether it's disability rights or LGBTQ rights or neurodiversity, all of these movements to sort of expand our ideas of what constitutes a meaningful life, what constitutes a valued person. Hmm. And so... Um so how old was she when she was first diagnosed? About two years and four months. Uh-huh. And what made you, how did that come about? She couldn't talk. She didn't talk. She didn't look at us. She didn't, uh, she seemed happy, but she couldn't engage. And uh, she she talks quite a bit now. And she um graduated high school. She even got an associate's degree at a community college. I mean, she's, she's gone mm. far, mm. far beyond where anyone ever imagined. And she um, works uh, taking care of animals at a research lab. Uh, she takes care of rodents yeah. and, uh, and rabbits. And she, she, she loves it. And she lives with us. And um, she describes herself. I mean, if people ask her about herself, she will say she's autistic. Um, if you talk to her, I mean, you'll know immediately that um, she's autistic, if you know anything about autism. Um, but she will use that term to refer not only to some challenges she has, but she'll also use it to refer to her strengths, like her visual spatial skills, like her ability to connect with animals. She's not somebody who views autism as a disease. She sees it as uh, an aspect of her but not the only one. Hmm. And um, do you, what is your view of what the causes are? Do you believe that it has anything to do with vaccines, for example? Oh, God, no. Uh, I, I've done research on this subject, and Unstrange Minds is really a, a book that methodically takes down that idea. Um, one of the things I did uh, not long ago in 2011 was an epidemiologic study in South Korea where we found a rate of 2.64% in a society that claimed that it basically had no autism at all. Um, when you start to change your methods even a little bit, you see a big growth. And so as people were saying, oh, there's this epidemic of autism, I was arguing, and I think persuasively, I hope so, that uh, what we were doing was we were getting a better assessment, better um, ascertainment of autism, given what the new criteria were. And our study in South Korea, which we published in the American Journal of, Psychi- of uh, Psychiatry, so-called Green Journal, challenged the Centers for Disease Control and other scientists to change their methods to start looking not just at records, but at actual human beings. CDC uh, studies don't look at actual human beings. They're only looking at records. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know how bad records are. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so... If the rate went up from 1.2 to 1.5%, I didn't think, and I'm sure of it, that we were actually going up from 1.2 to 1.5%. The 1.5% was getting a more accurate view. And even when we were at 1.5, I thought we were going to get up above 2. And some people said I was really you know, off and that was wrong. But look at now we've got the best ascertainment is in New Jersey, and um, we're up at, you know, way over 2 point whatever percent, 2.3%, 2.4%. Um, you compare it to a state like Alabama, which was at like 0.6% when New Jersey was at 2%. I don't think anybody thinks that the proportion of children with autism in New Jersey would be is higher than in Alabama, four times as high as in Alabama. Um, but it's that Alabama only has one place reporting to the CDC, whereas New Jersey has multiple sites reporting and a really robust uh, child mental health care infrastructure. 
And so these are artifacts of changes in the special education infrastructure as well as in the methods that epidemiologists use. For my daughter, what this means is that she was part of that increase in ascertainment and in new special education programs. She wasn't even diagnosed by the school system with autism until she was in fifth grade. Not because she didn't have autism before that. Obviously, she got her diagnosis when she was two years, four months. But the school system didn't diagnose her with autism here because they didn't even use that category of autism until then, until Uh she was in fifth grade. So before that, she was classified as multiple disabilities. Mm-hmm. She was a new well, case. Okay. She looked like a brand new case, right? But she wasn't a brand new case. She was only a brand new case because now they had spaces to fill in something called an autism program. Yes. Okay. I mean, I agree with all that. Um, but, but I also think you don't think. Well, first of all, getting back to sort of what you think is the cause, don't you think that? Um, I, I, in my experience, it seems. Like, although, yes, it's true that we have better diagnoses or we're more knowledgeable about it and so on, and there's a spectrum and all that, Um, but it also seems as though there actually is an increase and that, um, that some factors are creating this increase. Well, it, when any kind of condition increases in diagnostic rate, it feels, it does feel like there's an increase. It absolutely feels like there's an increase. You know, uh, when I was younger, we didn't have all these Starbucks and Pete's Coffee and all these other coffee places out all everywhere. Um, it feels like people drink a lot more coffee today because there's, a, <laughs> there's practically a Starbucks in every Starbucks. But yeah. the fact that there are more places that provide coffee... Uh, doesn't mean that we've increased our coffee consumption. So it <laughs> doesn't mean there are more, there are more coffee drinkers. Because, but wait a second. I think we have. Because, you know, Starbucks is not just about drinking coffee. It's about being cool by going to Starbucks, right? Well, <laughs> yes, but people drank tons of coffee before then. And the point is well, that, that people with autism were here before, but they were classified by other things. Let me give you an example. Yes. Between the years of 2001 and 2011 in the United States, there was an increase in the um, school classifications of autism of more than 300%, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But But the special education rate, meaning the proportion of children who received special education services between 2001 and 2011 was static, didn't move. 12% of kids got special ed in 2001. 12% of kids got special ed in 2011. But autism went up 300%. How is that possible? It's only possible if autism replaced other diagnostic categories. And so if you look at the rate of decline of intellectual disability and other disorders, you see the mirrored increase in those kids being called autistic. So what we see is a substitution of autism for other conditions. Okay, but do you getting back to the the etiology? Since you wrote a book on this and you have your own personal experience, what do you do? You have some idea about the etiology of autism? We don't know. You know, uh, I, I'm not a basic scientist doing research on this, but um, mm-hmm. it is clear that. Autism is highly heritable. It doesn't mean inherited. It means that there's a genetic contribution, either inherited or de novo mutations. Heritable you know, just means the, the degree to which there's a genetic contribution. Uh, but there are, you know, it's anybody's guess how many hundreds or thousands of genes or genetic regulators are involved with with autism. But, um, you know, there's a lot of work going on on this. And my attitude is that we should continue to do that work. 
but the problem is when we focus on the brain and the and the genes and the genetic regulators, we don't necessarily always focus on experience. And as an anthropologist, I'm more concerned with whether autistic people get the special ed services they need, whether people with depression mm-hmm. get care, whether people with anxiety get care, whether people with schizophrenia are not abandoned by their families or put out on the street. And mm-hmm. so far, mm-hmm. no, no scientific knowledge about etiology has translated into making a better world for people who are mm-hmm. ill. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I, I, you know, of course agree that uh, there's, uh, maybe I shouldn't say too much focus, but well, psychiatrists, um, psychiatry and psychiatrists have really, uh, well, gone gone down the garden path, have gone um, so focused into the brain and biology and chemistry and drugs um, and have forgotten, for the most part, uh, really treating the person and doing therapy for the person. You know how, I'm I'm sure you know, the the large percentage of psychiatrists uh, over the last 10, 20 years when insurance companies decided that it's cheaper for them to pay social workers or psychologists and psychiatrists to do therapy, psychiatrists have just abandoned the field and um, do these med visits. You know, that is one of my pet peeves. I do not do med visits um, where they see... Where they see patients for 15 or, or 20 minutes, once every one to three months, and just concentrate on symptoms and side effects, and of course the people don't get better. And um, there's no drug. Yes, there are certain diseases or mental illnesses where you do need to take medication, but that never cures anybody of anything. It's the therapy that gets to the background, the childhood, you know, the Freudian childhood that really does well, the trick. You know, right, I well, totally we, agree with well, you. Totally agree with you. Well, well, save it for when we come back. We're, there's, we do okay. need to take another break. And uh, we, when we come back, we will be talking more with my guest, Dr. Roy Richard Grinker, about uh, psychiatry, autism, mental illness, stigma. So stay tuned. Experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carroll is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carroll wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarroll.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarroll.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about stigma of mental illness. Are any of us normal? With my guest, Dr. Roy Richard Grinker, a professor of anthropology and author of several books on mental illness. We're talking um, primarily about uh, the book on um, <laughs> what I... Oh, what I just said, the normal, where are we? I didn't, I didn't, um, here, nobody's normal, how culture created the stigma of mental illness. And that's what we're going to be talking about during this um, last segment of the show, uh, which is sort of an outgrowth of what we've been talking about earlier. And um, how did you, I mean, you you were talking about how you've traveled all over the world. I presume that um, a lot of that had to do with looking at people who were diagnosed with psychiatric illnesses. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things that is really remarkable about many mental illnesses is that the prevalence globally is, is rather much the same. You know, 1% of people have schizophrenia in this country, another 1% have it in that country. There's not a huge amount of variation, but there is a lot of variation in severity and outcomes. And so when we look at schizophrenia, we see that people in non-industrialized rural settings have a better outcome. They tend to have more chance of marrying, working. Uh, they have fewer psychotic episodes. They have uh, fewer, uh, less severity of episodes. And the only thing that we can really figure out is that it has to do with differences in social supports. And I met a little boy um, named Geshe in the Kalahari Desert in Namibia, and um, he's non-speaking autistic, and I asked his parents who was going to take care of him when they died. And they didn't even understand my question because they could only think that I was suggesting that the entire village would somehow die. And they said, but we're not all going to die at once. There's going to be a village here. And so they, they didn't even comprehend that question because they live in a society where there would always be somebody, some kin, somebody related to help to take care of him. And so we see that the shame, the secrecy, the fear about mental illnesses and developmental disabilities and, and other disabilities as well really um, – is exacerbated in societies where we think that the ideal person has to be this independent, autonomous, you know, producer. Mm. And it decreases when society either takes responsibility for the person or often takes some of the blame. In that same village, there was a man with schizophrenia, but he's not blamed for it because it's thought to be um, a super, uh, the result of supernatural malevolence, and it's not his fault, mm. right? And so people don't mm. blame him. For it, society takes the blame, or somebody else takes the blame. Uh huh. Um. Yes, that. Uh, it really. It you know you can see where. Um, I mean, it makes sense what you were just saying, and that is kind of a problem. Uh, that that I mean, that, talking about I was saying about the increasing number of people with autism. Um, which you disagreed with, okay. <laughs> but like one of the things that is, whether it's because maybe, whether it's because we are diagnosing more and so on, regardless of what the diagnosis is really, um, there is that issue of what is going to happen to people who with schizophrenia or autism or whatever, uh, you know, a diagnosis where at least at this point for most people, they can't really take care of themselves. Um, have you, I mean, what is your, what are you suggesting about that? Well, I think that each society has to figure out what is useful and, and not useful. Um, and we often introduce new diagnostic terms and new uh, therapies based not necessarily on new scientific knowledge, but on new ideas about what works. So take Asperger's, for example. It was produced as a, generated as a new term and, and, and put in the DSM in 1994. But it wasn't because it was mm-hmm. suddenly discovered. Um, it was because we mm-hmm. needed a less stigmatized term for people with autism mm. who did not have a language delay. And then in 2013, Asperger's is eliminated 
but it's not because there was any scientific knowledge, and it wasn't because psychometric testers realized for the first time that they couldn't reliably distinguish between subtypes of autism. It was that autism had become a, so much of a less stigmatized term, and, turn, and we had refashioned many, many conditions into spectrums that we no longer needed Asperger's. It did its cultural work. Science is usually mm. the servant of culture. It's not the driver of culture. It does culture's work for it. And that's what Asperger's did in this case. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's so interesting. I was on the uh, committee for um, schizoaffective disorder for the DSM. And, uh, I mean, so much of what goes in and doesn't go in and, and, the, and the criteria and all of that, so much has to do with politics. And I don't mean Democrats and Republicans, but, you know, um, who, which institution is having more power this year or, you know what yes. I mean, where the, but, where the psychiatrist comes from, who's on the committee. But you know what? <laughs> it's, the same in, it's the same in other branches of medicine, too. If you were to listen to the people trying to figure out what rate, uh, what, what blood pressure level constitutes hypertension, or what, <laughs> what constitutes uh, diabetes and not diabetes, you would find a yeah. similar kind of debate. And so as psychiatrists and neuroscientists struggle to try to make their field as objective and as truthful and as fact and lab-based as the other medical professions, they're worshiping a false idol. Mm-hmm. Because medicine <laughs> is wonderful, but it is, it is yeah. not pure truth. It is about consensus at any particular point in time. Who decides what BMI constitutes obesity, right? And so these are all Mm -hmm. judgment calls that we make. And so Mm -hmm. we make those in mental health too. Where does sadness become depression? Where does shyness Mm -hmm. become anxiety? I mean, these are all judgment calls that we make in all of the uh, the healthcare professions, and I don't think psychiatry should be singled out for being more subjective than the others. How many people uh-huh. actually get treatment at any visit to a doctor based on some lab test? Most people come in and they say, I have fatigue, I have nausea, I have headaches. Those things tend to be, you know, if they're not psychiatric, they're certainly not treatable through lab tests. Mm-hmm. So what in your, tell us some of the things that have made you the most angry. What are you most passionate about correcting or enlightening people about in regard to stigma? One of the things around stigma that has really gotten me pretty passionate recently is electroconvulsive therapy. Because I've seen with my own eyes people whose lives were saved from electroconvulsive therapy. Yet, you know, the the electric shock that they give in in an emergency room to the heart is the hero of the medical drama, that huge jolt of electricity that brings the patient back to life. And yet, in the cases where people's lives have been saved through electroconvulsive therapy, um, it's uh, it's somehow seen as torture or brutality. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I... In Nobody's Normal, I have a chapter in which I go through very carefully to try to describe what electroconvulsive therapy is and how it works. And it is, um, you know, uh, I'm more focused on the stigma. I'm not a clinician and I don't, and I'm not a doctor and I don't, you know, do therapies. Um, But I have um, a concern about the increased, the continued stigmatization of the most effective form of therapy for depression when nothing else works and when people mm. are sometimes on their deathbed. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, I, I remember... I was, uh... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, as a child, I mean, I was a 15-year-old. I, I, I saw a woman who was almost uh, dead, and um, my grandfather and uh, other doctors at this hospital where my grandfather worked, um, they allowed me, even as a 15-year-old, to see electroconvulsive therapy. And I I actually was disappointed because I thought it would be something theatrical because I had seen the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But it wasn't (laughs) anything like that. It wasn't anything like that at all. (laughs) And, um, I mean, maybe one little toe wiggled, but that was about it. And, um, uh, and two weeks later, this woman who had been emaciated and could, she was so depressed, she couldn't even blink. She was catatonic. 
uh, was eating popcorn mm. and enjoying a television show. And it was extraordinary, extraordinary, a real influential thing for me as a, as a, as a young person to see that kind of almost, you know, miraculous recovery. Mm-hmm. So I, that's why I put a yeah. that's why I put a whole chapter in about ECT. Mm, mm, that's good. When I was a psychiatric resident at Bellevue and NYU, we I saw um, I, I not only saw people um, performing ECT on patients, but I they were some of them were my patients who I then cared for after. And it is true that um, right after the, the treatment, um, the person is in somewhat of a daze and they do lose their memory for, you know, uh, at least right away. Um, but it does pretty much, you know, everybody's a little different, but it does pretty much come back. And, you know, it may take a day, it may take a week, but it does come back. And yes, there are amazing, I haven't, I've never seen anything where there was a bad where the result was bad. It was always where they made improvements. Sometimes they made more improvements than others, but there was always improvement. And yes, just like what you're talking about. And I think, you know, that movie, <laughs> Cuckoo's Nest, uh, really is what people think of when they think of yeah. ECT. And that's well, unfortunate. You know, there, are, there are side effects, but there, but there are lots of side effects to other things that save our lives, right? Yes, I mean, open-heart yes. surgery has side effects. Right, but yeah. we but but we don't um, see it as somehow this you know horrible torture, um, even though it's a blade cutting you know eight inches through the sternum. Okay. Um, and I have right. to say, you know, if it were me, um, I would want my family to consent um, to giving me the therapy that would save my life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, absolutely. Yet, you know what, what's interesting is there are a lot of people out there who've written memoirs about their mental illnesses who received ECT, but they don't mention ECT often. And they'll tell us about their mm. sex lives and all kinds of other intimate things, but they won't talk about ECT because it's still so stigmatized. People uh-huh. still are so afraid, uh-huh. particularly in California. I mean, that's a that's a seat of uh, resistance against electroconvulsive therapy. Well, maybe that's because there are so many celebrities who have had it here and who are writing uh, the memoirs. It could be. <laughs> I don't know. Well, thank you but, so uh, much. Yeah. We, have, we have unfortunately come to the end of uh, the time for this show. I will have to have you back on because this has been fascinating. Again, well, I love talking um, with you. my guest. My guest, thank you. My guest is Dr. Roy Richard Grinker, and again, his book is called Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness, and his other book that was um, um, that he was uh, what inspired to write because of his autistic daughter is called Unstrange Minds, Remapping the World of Autism. Well, thank you so much. This has really been fascinating. And, um, My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 